the book of James, uh, which we'll be looking at over the next five weeks, uh, is a very uh, down-to-earth, very practical book. Not that the other books aren't down-to-earth and practical, but James really um, brings everything right down to uh, what it means to live as Christ people. James, who wrote this letter, uh, is James the the brother of Jesus, not James, one of the twelve apostles. Uh, And it's important to note that because uh, he introduces himself not as James, the brother of Jesus, but as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. While he has uh, flesh and blood um, uh, ties to the man Jesus, uh, his real relationship with him is uh, as his Lord and his, his master. But note too that uh, through this chapter and through the book, James repeatedly uses this word brothers, uh, which is a word which also incorporates sisters, brothers and sisters. Uh, so James is very clear, his relationship to his flesh and blood brother, the Lord Jesus, is actually one of servants, but his relationship with uh, the people in the church uh, is one of brother and sister. That's the relationship that we uh, have with one another because Jesus is our Lord. The opening words of James are some of the more more controversial words in the New Testament. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. How on earth can joy and trials go together, let alone having joy because of trials? And it's made even more confronting when we realise that the word for trial here in verse 2 is the noun form of The word in verse 13, which is translated as tempted. James isn't talking about tough times in general like sickness or accidents or unfortunate circumstances that come from outside of us. Rather he's speaking of the internal trials, the internal struggles we face as we try to navigate the circumstances of life, good or bad, as people who still battle with our sinfulness. Now we know that James's audience had faced difficult circumstances. See how he addresses them as the twelve tribes of the dispersion, which is a reference to the scattering of Christians that happened as a result of the great persecution that happened at the time of Saul, that Saul was heading up before he uh, was converted and became Paul. But the trials that they faced weren't only the loss of homes, the loss of livelihoods, of being forced to uh, flee from their cities, uh, fearing for their lives or the lives of loved ones who had been arrested and killed. Uh, They're trials but they are the external trials. The real and important trial that they face 
was when they wrestled with how to respond to these events and to people around them. Would they respond with the love and the grace of the gospel or would they respond simply? Would they continue to be God's holy people as lights shining in a crooked and twisted generation or would they just cave in to the pressure to respond, to act and to speak just like the world around them? Now persecution is just one of the instances of difficulties that we face by simply living in this world. Uh, He says trials of various kinds though, meaning trials that are both large and small, from persecution or debilitating sickness right down to the everyday trials, the temptations to sin that we face every moment from the the time we wake up and think, am I going to live this day for myself or for others or for Christ, right to the moment that we go to bed and we lie down and we reflect on all that we did in that day. So we don't need to be run out of town, we don't need to be threatened with death to still face the trials of which James is speaking of, the trials that come from the temptation to sin. It can be easy to think that we're living a good and godly life when life is easy and we quickly can become complacent about pursuing Christ's likeness. But the moment a difficulty comes, then the internal battle begins as we start to discover sinful thoughts and sinful responses within ourselves that we'd fooled ourselves into thinking we're no longer there when life was was easy and comfortable. We may uh, handle a difficult situation uh, well on pragmatic terms. We might fix the problem that we face in some way, but that's not the ultimate true test of character. The true test is whether our response to that situation is one of sinful, selfish desire or one that displays the holiness of God. So, counterintuitively, James tells us to think positively about these temptations. Count it all joy when you meet trials or temptations. Why? Because God has a purpose in allowing us to face these trials. Verse 3 says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that's a different word there. The word for test is different to the word for trial. Biblically, a test is not an exam where we demonstrate that we've achieved something, like the exam at the end of uh, a subject at uni or at school. A test, biblically, is something that actually produces the results, like raw material, a piece of metal ore that is put into a furnace and subjected to great heat or great pressure, and then it comes out as 
the pure metal or the pure uh, precious stone. To be tested is to be transformed from something that appears to be worthless into something that has great value. In our case, the raw material is that we're sinners saved by grace. All of the guilt of our sin and uncleanness has been washed away by the blood of Christ in his atoning death and by the the water of the Holy Spirit by whom we've been born again. Our justification, being made right with God, is, is complete and has been applied to us through hearing the word of the Gospel and through faith in him. But in a sense, uh, when that happens, at the, maybe at the first moment that you truly believed in Christ, uh, you were like the raw material ready, ready then to be put in the furnace of trials. Because the Father then begins a new stage of work in us called sanctification, in which he changes us to become more and more like Christ. And the means he uses that uh, to, to bring that about is the testing of our faith, faith by facing many trials. Through trials, we're told we're enabled to stand firm. We're told to be steadfast against these trials. But see, steadfastness isn't the ultimate goal. It's the means to the end, which is to be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. In other words, to be fully transformed into the likeness of Christ. So the wonder, the mystery of grace is this, the very thing that God has delivered us from, our sinfulness, is now the thing that he uses for his, our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. Nothing in our lives is wasted when we're in in Christ. Not even the trials that we face in our battle with sin. They're all used by the Father to make us more like Jesus. Now that answers the question that we may sometimes ask. Why do I keep sinning as a Christian? Why wasn't I made perfect the moment I believed in Jesus? When we're tempted to think that God's work in us was somehow insufficient because of our sin or when we're in the midst of ongoing and repeated struggle with sin, habitual sin and we maybe wonder, am I really a Christian? The answer is the Father has a good purpose in not eradicating our sinfulness the moment that we are saved. Instead of instantly making us perfect, his good and wise and perfect purpose is to perfect us through the trials and the tests for the remainder of our lives, however long that may be. It's only when we're taken home through death or when Jesus returns that we will know this completion, we will know this perfection when the work of sanctification has done its work and the raw materials have finally become that pure precious metal. 
That's why we can counter all joy because we know that no matter what happens in life it's all contributing towards what we will be in the next. Now James has often been called by Bible scholars the wisdom book of the New Testament. Uh, It uses the same kind of language as the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job, um, including this call to wisdom um, in verse 5, which reflects Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Holy One. And the outcome of wisdom, she is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Wisdom uh, is the path, the practical path to holiness. And holiness is the, is the outcome of one who is living according to God's wisdom, a life that's pleasing to him. Someone who's living according to wisdom is someone who essentially says, I recognise that in everything that's happening, the Father's at work to make me like Christ and to enable me to respond in a way that honours him. That's what holiness is about. Holiness isn't about personal moral purity, avoiding certain sins or doing certain virtuous acts. Holiness is knowing that in Christ we have been set apart by God, to God, for God. So holiness is a relational thing. It's knowing that we are in this right relationship with God in Christ and when we know that we will then seek a life that reflects that reality. And so, as I said, and as we'll see, James is an incredibly practical, down-to-earth book that focuses on what holiness should look like. Other parts of the New Testament focus in on the fact that we've been made holy in status by the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit. James focuses in on the practical outworking of that holiness. And chapter 1 is a, in a sense, it's a summary of the key themes of the book of James that he will then unpack in more detail in the following chapters. And this summary here in chapter 1, it gives us a really a wonderful portrait of a person who's walking in the true wisdom of holiness. Each point that we'll look at starts with an instruction. Uh, let him, let the lowly brother, let no one say, do not be deceived, know this and be doers of the word. So we're going to uh, work our way through each of these instructions in chapter 1 and as we do we'll see that underneath and the background to each of these instructions is actually the pattern of the Gospel itself. 
James, in his book, he only explicitly mentions the name of Jesus twice in his whole letter. But it is Jesus and the grace of the Gospel that undergirds everything that he says. So we'll see that, uh, firstly, there will be four things that we're called to recognise and then two things that we are called to respond, or two ways in which we're called to respond. So firstly, the wisdom of holiness recognises that while the Father's design and goal for me is perfection and completion, I am not yet perfect and complete. See that in verses 5 to 8. First principle of becoming wise is to recognise that you're a fool. When King Solomon began his reign, the Lord said to him, ask me for anything. And Solomon recognised that he did not have the capacity in himself to rule God's people. So instead of riches or a long life or the demise of his enemies, he asked for wisdom. And that pleased the Lord because Solomon already displayed wisdom by recognising his own deficiency. By saying, essentially, Lord, I'm a fool, I know nothing, that was the first step towards wisdom. So the Lord gave him even more wisdom, along with riches and honour as a bonus, just because he's a generous God who loves to shower good gifts on his children. If God's will for us is to walk in wisdom, we can have a confidence then that a prayer for wisdom is one that will always be answered. Verse 5. If you lack wisdom, then ask. And he gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But provided, we're told, we ask in faith, with no doubting. Now we need to be really careful we don't misunderstand that verse, verse 6. On face value it might sound like name it, claim it theology. Though we need to believe really hard for what we ask for and if we do then our faith will somehow make that thing materialise or make God do what we want. That's what the word of faith, televangelists will have you believe They turn faith into some kind of power where you can influence God and make things happen. The vending machine view of God. And of course they say, yeah, put plenty of money into my ministry if you want God to do things for you. That's not what James is saying. Faith has nothing to do with our actions. Faith is simply trusting in God's actions. See how he's not talking about how much faith we have. Simply that we ask in faith, even if our faith is a mustard seed. Faith as opposed to asking in doubt. Again, this word can often be misunderstood. It's not speaking of uh, that genuine uncertainty that may come from time to time as we go through life and uh, as we're seeking to live by faith and not by sight. 
the moments when we see or hear or experience something that unsettles us for a time so that we need reassurance and and encouragement to continue to trust in God. The doubt that James speaks of here is an active doubt. It's a critical attitude that questions whether God is really able to deliver what he's promised. Or maybe even thinks that when God acts, I have the capacity to make the assessment of whether I like what he's done or not and whether what he's done is the right thing. This kind of asking, see it's not that this person doubts and so they don't bother asking, this is a person who asks God but with this critical attitude. It's a hypocritical asking because when I doubt God in this way, I think that I'm wise already. I think that I'm able to assess whether what he does is wise or not. And so, if I have that attitude, I will be double-minded and unstable. So, step one in the wisdom of holiness is to recognise that in myself I have nothing. In myself I'm empty and in everything I need God to come and fill me. Secondly, the wisdom of holiness recognises that holiness doesn't come about by worldly wisdom. God's holiness, God's wisdom, turns everything upside down. Or I should say that it takes what's upside down and turns it right way round again. Things that are considered lowly in this world are considered great in the kingdom of God. And those whom the world calls great are considered small in the kingdom of God. We look at those who are rich, successful and assume that their success is because they are wise. We look on those who are unsuccessful and we assume that it's because they're foolish. Now it is true that Proverbs, the book of Proverbs tells us that wise living will often result in many benefits in this life. But it never says that prosperity in this life is a sure sign of being holy. The wisdom books, especially Ecclesiastes, also point out that in many cases it's the wicked who prosper and it's the righteous who suffer. And in the end, everyone, the wise, the fool, the wealthy, the poor, the righteous, the wicked, will all end up in the grave. So what that means is the person who thinks that their prosperity and their comfort is a proof of God's favour and of their virtue needs to think again. As does the person who thinks that their poverty and their suffering is an indication of their lack of faith or God's disapproval. James isn't saying here that there's any specific virtue in poverty. Remember, the context here is he's speaking to Christians who have lost everything because of their faith in Jesus. 
their loss of worldly wealth was because they considered knowing Christ to be of of much more value than anything the world can offer. And it's in this sense that they are exalted by being lowly. Their poverty in this case is a blessing from God. They've had all of their worldly comforts stripped away from them so they have no choice now but to trust in him. Now those who have been coming on Friday nights I trust will will recognise the language here that is taken from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's not from Psalm 2 is it? There it is, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the wicked, the way of the wicked will perish. So notice how that statement, in all he does, he prospers, is parallel to this statement, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The Gospel tells us that our reward from the Father is not in this life. As the world says, the world says be smart, be clever, be wise and you'll get everything that you need in this life. Live for this life alone. We're told no, our reward, our prosperity is not in this life but in the next. So step two of the wisdom of holiness is to recognise that the world cannot make me wise or holy. Thirdly, the wisdom of holiness recognises that my own sinfulness and inability to be holy, uh, I'm unable, I should say, my own sinfulness and inability to be holy is because I am a sinner, I'm a slave to sin. Here we are, verse 13. Testing, we saw in verse 2 and 3, comes from God, but temptation, here's that word that we saw in uh, verse 2 again, temptation does not come from God. While God is sovereign over all things that take place, it's precisely because of his sovereignty that he has the power to use our temptations in testing our faith, but that does not make him the author of sin or evil. We can say then, God is testing me, but never God is tempting me. The moral responsibility for my sin lies wholly with me. I can't blame anyone else 
least of all God. Now notice here that he doesn't call temptation in itself sin. Sin is the fruit of temptation that has been given into. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted immediately after his baptism, but because he stood firm and because he counteracted the devil's attacks with the word of God, his temptation did not become sin. So we're told in Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He He knows our weaknesses in that he was tempted, but that temptation never became sin. But for us, it's different. Jesus resisted temptation on our behalf, because we in our sinfulness constantly refuse and fail to resist. And the point here isn't to give us a foolproof method method to never give in to temptation, but to make us realise that all of our attempts to resist temptation will never be foolproof. That's precisely why we need Jesus to live and die for us. And verse 15 here uses three stages of human life to illustrate this. Conceived desire is like a child in the womb being fed and nourished until it's ready to be born. Then when it's born it becomes sin. All sinful action begins in the heart, which is why Jesus said that lust is the same as adultery, anger is the same as murder and so on. Then, just as a child comes into the fullness of their humanity when they become an adult, so sin, when fully grown by being pursued, brings forth that fruit of death. The wages of sin is death. So here's the bad news of our sin. We're entirely accountable accountable for all we do, but also we're enslaved by our sin so that we could never break free from it even if we wanted to. So step three in the wisdom of holiness is to recognise our own wretchedness and inability in our sin. Now this imagery of human conception and birth and maturity is used here because in describing sin it then stands in stark contrast to what comes next, which is the Gospel. The wisdom of holiness recognises that it's God who makes me holy. See the contrast here between who, the person we saw earlier, the double-minded, unstable person who doubts, and here the Father in whom there's no shadow or variation due to change. That's why we can trust him to keep his word because he's the same yesterday, today and forever. 
And so this, uh, analogy, this birth analogy is used again here to show us that the Father's goodwill trumps our sinful desire because it was the Father's will that sent Jesus to the cross for us. And then he gives us new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus as we hear the word of the gospel and our hearts are renewed and we trust in Jesus. And then he changes our destiny from one of death because of our sin into one of eternal life where we are the first fruits of all of his creatures. So we now look forward not to the grave but to the resurrection. That's the work of the gospel in us. So step four in the wisdom of holiness is to hear and to believe this gospel of grace that is all of God's work in saving me, uh, giving me new birth and making me his child. So to sum up the the four things that we must recognise that we're not sufficient in ourselves to be holy, we're still incomplete and imperfect, that the way of the world does not bring about holiness, that we cannot save ourselves from our indwelling sin and that God has done in Jesus everything that is needed for us to grow to maturity in Christ, to be the people he's created us to be. Now in light of these four things then, there are two responses that we're called to give in order to see the holiness of God work its way out in our lives as we grow in maturity in Christ. The first thing is that we're to be always ready to hear the word of God. Now there's a very good principle here. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's a good principle for any human relationship. If we all put that into practice, there would be harmony. But here, James is not talking necessarily about human relationships, our relationships with one another, but with God. See how verse 21 tells us that what we're to be quick to hear is the implanted word. Again, there's that that, um, pregnancy imagery being used, the word that's been implanted within us. That's the same word that the Father used to bring us forth in the new birth through the Gospel. So this implanted word is the word of God, the word of Christ, the Gospel. Now God's word will often confront us. It'll challenge our assumptions. It'll expose our sin and our foolishness. It calls us to take up our cross and to follow Christ and to count all that the world offers us as garbage in comparison. So how do we respond to that word? Are we quick to speak, to tell God that your word is not acceptable to me or that it must mean something different to what it plainly is telling me? Are we quick to anger 
telling him that he has no right to exercise his authority and sovereignty in our lives. Well, the wisdom of holiness says that God as my creator and as my redeemer has every right to speak to me. That while at times his word may be difficult and may be painful to hear, my wrestling with it and coming to terms with his word, that's part of the trials he's using to make me more like Jesus. Jesus who did everything in obedience to the word of his father. That's where he wants to bring us. So, the first response to God's work in us through the Gospel is that we must be always ready to hear God's Word because God's Word is life. It's God's Word that saved us. It's God's Word that preserves us and it's God's Word that will ultimately perfect us. And then secondly, we're told to always be eager to obey the Word verses 22 to 26. Now the word here for doer is poetes from which we get our word poet. It was a word that referred to performers in the theatre, those who received the words that had been written for their character and they allowed those words to shape then what they said and did So they they got into character and then they went out on stage and they actually became an embodiment of those words. A performer who hasn't learned their lines properly is uh, one kind of disaster for for a play. But a performer who learns their lines but then never appears on stage, well that's another kind of disaster that's even worse. He's saying don't just, be, uh, don't just be a doer but who isn't really paying attention to the word and doesn't really know what the lines are but don't be something worse, don't be someone who's studied and knows the words but never goes out there and does them. We must be always ready to hear God's word but the reason he speaks to us is to bring about obedience. To hear and not do is like using a mirror wrongly, we're told, in verse 23. A mirror shows me my natural face. It doesn't have filters. It's not like Zoom where you can tick the box that says touch up my appearance to make me look better than I really am. I got up this morning and I looked in the mirror and I saw the results of my foolishness yesterday when I was at an outdoor wedding and I didn't have a hat or sunscreen and I looked at my natural face which is red from sunburn and I couldn't push a button to say just take away the sunburn. A mirror isn't supposed to do that. A mirror is supposed to show me as I am so that I can see my face. I can see that I haven't shaved or that my face is dirty or there's something wrong that needs to be fixed so that I can do something about it. Well, the implanted word of God, which we're told to receive with meekness, does this. It reveals our failures 
with the aim of leading us to repentance, changing the way that we live so that our actions better reflect his leading instead of our own sinful desires. And see how someone who is a hearer but not a doer only deceives themselves. Um, There we are, verse 22 there. This is another way of describing what Jesus called hypocrisy, claiming in your words to be one thing but showing yourselves in your actions to be another. In the end, the only person a hypocrite fools is themselves. Obviously, God is never fooled, but most people can spot a hypocrite a mile off. We're told that there is great blessing in both hearing and doing. Because not only will we bring glory to God in all we do, but in doing so we will be the person that the Father is working to make us into, the person who's supposed to be uh, bearing the image of Christ. So we must be always eager to hear the word, but also eager to obey with the help and the power of the Holy Spirit.